Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says his son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, and your children and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. The next reading is from verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. When they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them. And when they saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. The next passage is from Genesis 46 from verse 1. <clears throat> so Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God said to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I, must, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Father, so often uh, the hand of your providence is hidden from us, but we praise you and thank you for drawing back the curtain in the life of Joseph and supremely in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your purposes, that they are good, that they are sure, that they are true, and we thank you that you have brought them about in Christ. Lord, we pray that uh, you would bring that truth to us now this evening, through your word, in the power of your spirit, so that we might leave your changed people. Amen. <clears throat> Who do you trust? In this day and age, who can you trust? Do you trust your parents? 
your partner, your siblings maybe? Do you trust your employer? Lots of <laughs> heads furiously shaking. Your network provider? Your insurance broker? Everyone is clamoring for your trust. They call it brand loyalty. You just drive to the airport, you're going to see those big expensive invitations to trust us. We make cement. Trust us. We sell data. How could you not trust us? We buy cars, a notoriously trustworthy enterprise. We're a political party. Need I say more? Coronation tell us that trust is earned. They've earned it. I'm pretty sure VBS Bank said the same thing. Do you trust your doctor? Do you trust your child's teacher? Your lecturer? Who do you trust? Perhaps, and just gauging from some of the head movements, you don't trust anyone. I found this post online. People always ask me why I don't open up to anyone anymore. The truth is, once you start to like someone, they either move, die, or betray you, and you never see them again. Now that's fairly cynical, but perhaps that's where some of us are. So it seems like there are two options. Option one, you invest your trust in someone or something, and they eventually let you down. Or option two, you've been through option one so many times that you don't trust anyone at all. Those seem to be the options. There is a third way. And understanding the providence of God is going to show us what that third way is. So if you've been on the journey with us, I know the students only got back halfway through the journey, but if you have been on the journey with us, we've been looking at God's providence over sin. We've looked at God's providence over suffering. Uh, last week we looked at God's providence over power. And tonight we look at God's providence over his promises. Before we go any further, I need to catch you up because we've jumped ahead in the story. You remember last week we left the story in Genesis chapter 41. Joseph was in charge. He was exalted over all of Egypt. His job was to lead the country through the famine that had gripped the whole world. And the famine extended all the way to Canaan where Jacob, Joseph's father, and Joseph's brothers were actually beginning to starve. Uh, Jacob sends the ten brothers to go and buy grain. Benjamin, the favorite, stays at home. When they arrive, Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. He immediately puts them to the test. He quizzes them about their family. They give up the fact that one brother is no more, ironically the one standing in front of them, and one brother stayed at home. Joseph accuses them of spying. They reply, no, no, they are honest men. He knows for a fact they are not honest men. And he has them thrown into prison. And then we read this in chapter 42, verse 18. You can follow there with me if you have your Bible open. 42, verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. Verse 20. And bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. 
Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you would not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. We're beginning to see change. The brothers are softening. They are starting to admit their guilt, acknowledge their guilt. Joseph then takes Simeon as a deposit. I mean, spare a thought for Simeon. He's a deposit in a prison in Egypt while his brothers go away indefinitely. He takes Simeon as a deposit and he tells the other brothers not to return without Benjamin as proof of their honesty. Before they leave, he smuggles the purchase price of the grain into their sacks as leverage. And when the brothers find the silver, they cry out, what has God done to us? What has God done to us? Without knowing it, they are recognizing the hand of God in this. They are recognizing providence. They get back to Canaan. They relay the story to Jacob. Jacob is adamant. And I quote, Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. My son shall not go with you. He's adamant. But the stomach speaks louder than words. The grain runs out. And when Jacob tells his sons to go and buy more, this time they are adamant. Unless Benjamin goes with us, we are not going. It's a deadlock. It looks like the family might starve in this deadlock. But then the deadlock is broken by the most unlikely candidate, Judah, the one who sold his father's favorite son into slavery, offers to take full responsibility for his father's other favorite son. Things are changing. Jacob agrees. He, acknowledges, he also acknowledges God's providence in a prayer. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. For a second time, the brothers head to Egypt. As soon as they get to Joseph's palace, they confess the silver in their sacks from the previous trip. This time, it's the steward of the house who gives a strange response. You're going to hear it in a moment. That once again suggests God's providence. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. Then the steward arranges an audience with Joseph, and we read this. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. And they bowed down before him to the ground. Does that ring any bells? If you were with us in the first session, something will be a distant echo, no doubt. Remember Joseph's dreams. When he was just an arrogant young boy, there were two of them which meant the thing was fixed by God. And here it is, under the hand of God's providence, Joseph was humiliated so that he could be exalted. His brothers are bowing down to him, just as it was in the dream. And God has clearly brought this to pass. Joseph welcomes his brothers warmly on account of Benjamin and only on account of Benjamin. They are Still not yet reconciled, they won't eat together. They eat separately. And Joseph shows Benjamin the kind of favoritism that got this family into this mess in the first place. After the feast, he decides to test them one more time. He smuggles a silver chalice, a silver goblet, into Benjamin's sack. 
When it's discovered, he demands that Benjamin stays as his slave. And once again, redemption, salvation comes from the most unlikely candidates. Once again, it's Judah who steps forward to offer himself as a substitute for Benjamin. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. We have to pause here and think about this. This is Judah. Judah is the one who sold his brother into slavery. Judah is the one who is now begging to enter into slavery on his brother's behalf. This is a radical transformation under the hand of God's providence. And that brings us to today's passage, chapter 45. Passage that Leah read for us. Joseph's resistance finally breaks, and he just weeps openly in front of his brothers. He announces himself to them. They are completely stunned and probably a little terrified, if you bear their history in mind, and who Joseph now is. But Joseph reassures them. He says, verse 4, chapter 45, verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. That's not exactly reassuring. I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. Don't think I've forgotten what you did. But the assurance comes in what follows, in verse 5. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. It was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So we see there, in just in that short passage of three verses, four verses, we see all the elements of God's providence that we spoke about in our very first session. Government, concurrence, preservation. Three times it says, it was God who sent me. God is in charge. God is in control. That's government. And yet, at the same time, he does not free his brothers from responsibility. Did you notice that? I'm your brother whom you sold into Egypt. It's pointed. He's saying, you did this thing. You did this thing. But God overruled it. God overruled your sin for his own purposes and plans. God worked through you and in spite of you. That's concurrence. And God did it all to save life. That's preservation. Government, concurrence, preservation. God cares. God plans. God executes his plans through agents and instruments like us. This is the God who provides. This is the God who provides. Joseph says to his brothers through tears, all this... Everything that has happened was the providence of God. Verse 15. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked openly with him. The family is now completely reconciled. 
where there was nothing but strife and fracture and hard-hearted hatred, there is now repentance and forgiveness and embrace. They are transformed. They stripped Joseph. He puts clothes on them. They curse Joseph. He blesses them. All under the hand of God's providence. Joseph sends them back to fetch Jacob from Canaan. But this news actually brings Jacob back, not just from Canaan, back from the dead, back to life. 45 verse 27, the spirit of their father Jacob was revived. On his way to Egypt, Jacob has this encounter with God. And I'm going to read to you from 46 verse 2. This part of the passage Leah read. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. In other words, God reaffirms the promise to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation. Jacob mustn't be anxious about leaving the promised land because the promise still stands and God will bring it about by his providence. Everything that has happened to Joseph and his brothers happened, chapter 45, verse 7, to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. But preserving a remnant is part of a bigger, much bigger purpose. It's keeping the promise alive. Now, just to understand exactly what's going on here, we need a bit of a flashback to something very similar in Genesis chapter 22. You remember the story. God commands Abraham, we, we all remember it because it's so shocking. God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Maria. You remember that story? It's a shocking story, but it's actually more shocking than we think because it's not just a father being instructed to sacrifice his own son which is hard enough in and of itself. But Isaac was the child of the promise. It is the promise that was about to be sacrificed. It is the promise that was about to die. And yet, Abraham trusted God. Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead, and so he went ahead. At the very last moment, God intervened and provided a substitute a ram for the sacrifice to take Isaac's place. And so Genesis 22 verse 14, Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. That's the Bible's very first word on God's providence. The Lord will provide to keep the promise alive. Now we highlight that because we see the very same thing in the life of Joseph. The very same thing. God acting providentially to keep his promises. And we see the very same thing in the life of Jesus. God acting providentially to keep his promises once and for all. In the case of Joseph, God orders all things to bring about reconciliation, shalom, blessing, healing for Jacob's broken family. But we've read the story, and we know that that peace was temporary. That sin, the sin that ripped Jacob's family apart in the first place, was still there. It was just under the surface. 
And so later in the history, in Israel's history, the inevitable happened. Israel was torn apart by the same sin. And in the end, the ten northern tribes completely disappeared, were completely destroyed, leaving only Judah and Benjamin. Something deeper had to change. And so in the case of Jesus, God orders all things to bring about reconciliation, shalom, and blessing, not just for Israel, but for the families, all the families of the world. And not just for one moment in history, but for all time into eternity. On the mountain of the Lord, the Lord has provided. And that mountain is Calvary. God himself is the ram. God himself is the substitutionary sacrifice that breaks the power of sin and opens the way to blessing. In the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So the story of Joseph is the story of God's providence over his promises. It's a powerful story, but it's just a shadow of a much deeper reality. It's just a sign pointing us to the truth. It's the difference between standing under that brown signpost at the bus station that says this way to Table Mountain and actually standing on top of Table Mountain itself. The truth is that God provides to keep his promises in Jesus Christ. Now... That tour of scripture, that tour of the Bible, what does it mean for us? Well, it immediately raises two very practical questions. Very practical. What are these promises that God is so determined to keep? Number one. And number two, can we trust him? Can we trust him to keep those promises? So what are the promises? Remember Genesis 12? What did God promise Abraham? He basically promised him Eden. He promised to make him into a people, to give him a place, and to bless him by ruling over him in that place. That's Eden. Adam and Eve, God's people, in the garden, God's place, with God, under his rule. Now think about this with me for, for a second. To promise Eden means that the effects of sin have to be reversed. Because sin is what cost us Eden in the first place. Sin is why we are not in Eden. With Jacob and Joseph, we see the promise partially fulfilled, but sin is still getting in the way. And that's the story of Israel, isn't it? That story goes on and on. Throughout the history of Israel, we never see the promise more than partially fulfilled. And sin is always the thing that gets in the way. Only Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of that promise. He is God's people reduced to one. The perfectly faithful Israelite. He is God's place. The place where man and God meet. In his person. And he is God's rule. The Messiah who reigns to bless his people. Okay. Those are wonderful truths. But where do they leave us? What do the promises of God mean for us if Jesus has fulfilled them? Just turn with me to Re Revelation. Right at the end of your Bibles. So we've been working in Genesis. Let's go to the other end and find out where it all goes.
chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Skipped right to the very end, chapter 21, from verse 1. Second last chapter from verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. God's promise to us is that we will be his people, every tribe and people and nation and tongue, in his place, the new heavens and the new earth, under his blessed rule, he who is seated on the throne. And at the center of it all is the Lamb. If we are in Christ, we will be with God forever. That is the heartbeat of the promise. God with us, and we will be with him. That's the heartbeat of the promise. We won't know him, we won't know him, through a book. And we won't know him through a preacher. Can I have an amen? amen? The God of the universe will welcome us home. Just imagine it with me. The songs we are going to sing. I mean, this is beautiful. But this is a shadow. The songs we're going to sing, the games we're going to play. The work we're going to do, the beautiful things we're going to make with our hands and with our minds. The fun we are going to have. The laughter, the joy, none of it, none of it, and this is the difference, none of it tainted by sin or guilt or shame. All of it done to the glory of God. All of it done as a pure act of worship. Don't you want to be part of that? Some old reformers put it like this, the goal of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And those two things are one. The goal of man, mankind, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And God promises to make that happen. That's the promise. It's a big promise. Can we trust it? That's our second question. Can we trust him? Now, to answer that, I think we have to start by saying, God cannot do any more than he has done to earn our trust. Okay, death is the limit when it comes to earning trust. If you want to prove your commitment to someone, dying is pretty much as far as you can go. If that person is your enemy, well, then perhaps you've gone further. If you are a holy God dying for a race of sinners, well, then that is the length and breadth of commitment. There's nothing else. You've left nothing else out in, out in the field. We judge people by their actions. That's the measure of trust. If we judge God by his actions, we have to say he has proven himself entirely trustworthy. 
So here's the question. Why don't we trust him? The Bible gives us three reasons. These are the three enemies of trust. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world. The world offers alternatives. The world offers a whole suite of alternative investment opportunities for your trust. It's all those big expensive invitations on the highway screaming, trust us, trust me, the wealth creator, the health insurer, the lifestyle estate, the political party, the university. Trust us. We are going to give you the blessed life that you're after. Social fulfillment, belonging, security, people, place, rule. We can give it to you. Can they? Joseph could easily have entrusted himself to Pharaoh. He could easily have seen Pharaoh as his ticket out of prison and up the social ladder. By the world's standards, Pharaoh was his Messiah, his Savior. We all believe in networking, don't we? LinkedIn. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Now Pharaoh summons Joseph and says to him, I've heard you can interpret dreams, and the world is going, go for it, Joe. Of course you can. This is your big shot. Tell him what he wants to hear. And Joseph responds, it is not in me. It is in God. And the whole world groans. He's missed his chance to rise. Of course, we know how the story ends. The story ends with Joseph as the father of Pharaoh, precisely because he trusted God and not Pharaoh. The point is this. The world kills your trust in God by offering you alternatives. And God Almighty is not willing to share your trust with an investment, or a degree, or a career path, or a partner, or anything else. second trust killer is the flesh, our own sinful natures and desires. The way our sinful natures, desires undermine trust in God is they offer fulfillment now. Right? It's immediate gratification. You can have the blessing. You can have it now. You can have it on your terms. You just have to take it. Name it and claim it. It's yours. Here's Joseph. He's in his master's house with his master's wife. She's offering sexual fulfillment. There's a part of him that no doubt wants that. But he views loyalty to his master and obedience to God as the bigger prize. What has God done for him up to that point? Materially, not a whole lot. But Joseph knew the character of God and the plans of God, the purposes of God. He would have heard about God from his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather. He would have experienced God's sustaining love in the midst of his own suffering. He knew that his relationship with God was of an infinitely deeper, more enduring satisfaction than even the passion of a sexual affair. The intensity of of the sexual sexual affair will burn out. It always does. But the love of God, that is forever. 
My friends, our sinful desires are constantly trying to seduce us. Constantly. Trying to get us to trade our trust in the eternal God for a thrill, a cheap thrill in the here and now. That's what they do. Offering us the empty promise of blessing without God. You can have the blessing. You don't have to have God. Just have the blessing. Take the blessing. They are the enemy of trust. So there's the world and there's the flesh. Finally, there's the devil. He's the puppet master. He's the one pulling the strings, dangling the temptations of the world and the flesh in our faces to distract us, to keep us from trusting God at all costs, at any cost. How does he do it? Let's go back to the beginning of the Bible. Again, Genesis 3. Go with me there. Let's have a look behind the scenes. So we're looking at verses 1 to 5, Genesis 3. Here's the devil trying to destroy Eve's trust in God. What does he do? This gives us insight into what he's going to do with us. First, he presents us with the temptation and questions whether God would withhold such a good thing from those he loves. Verse 1, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I mean, surely, Joseph, surely God wants you out of this prison. What's the harm in taking a little credit for the dreams? What's wrong with an affair if nobody knows? Nobody's going to get hurt. Nobody's going to find out. Surely God wants you to be happy. To be fulfilled. And once he sowed that seed of doubt, then the devil moves on to the next stage, which is to openly contradict God. Eve replies in verse 3, God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, or you will die. Listen to the devil. You will surely not die. Surely not. Open contradiction. Judgment in this day and age? Hell? Are you serious? I mean, surely God must be loving, and surely that means he wants to give us what our hearts desire so that we can be happy. Death? What kind of morbid God is this? Sounds a bit extreme. Finally, when he has you reasoning like that, he attacks the character of God directly. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, God just wants the fun for himself. God can't be trusted. And that's it. Right there. That's the goal. That's where the devil wants to take us. God can't be trusted. Trust your desires instead. Can't go wrong there. Trust Investec Asset Management. They'll look after you. Trust anyone but God. Anyone. The devil whispers these sweet nothings into our ears with the express goal of deflecting our trust away from God. The world, the devil, the flesh, enemies of trust. Knowing your enemy is the first step. That's the first step. We have to be aware that we are fighting this battle on three fronts. And it's a battle. Make no mistake about that. You are in a war for your souls. It's wartime. It's a state of emergency. This is martial law. That means you have to be very wary of the world and what it's offering you. We live in the age of content. 
What are you taking in? What's in your diet? What are you consuming? What are you watching and listening to? Are you consuming critically with a Christian worldview? Every, know this, know this for sure, every piece of content is flirting with your trust. Every single piece of content. Ask yourself, where does this podcast, this advert, this series that I'm busy binge-watching, where does it want me to put my trust? And if the answer is not in God, you need to be very, very careful. You need to treat it as enemy propaganda because that's what it is. There's nothing that's neutral, my friends. We also need to be deeply distrustful of our own desires. They are not pure. They are not the definition of truth, despite what our postmodern world is trying to tell us. You know, follow your heart. Your dreams are the purest form of who you are. That's not true. Your dreams, your desires do not define you. They have been warped by sin. Disney says, follow your heart. The Bible says, your heart, the human heart, is the most deceptive thing there is. Why would you follow it? Don't be led by your desires. Don't trust them. The devil will use them against you. And we need to know that the devil very much exists. And that he is determined, he is determined to destroy us. And he does it with the good things of this life. So that's the first step. Knowing you're in a fight, knowing your enemies. It's an important first step, but it doesn't secure victory. Knowing that you're in a fight and knowing your enemy doesn't secure victory. For that, we have only one hope. Listen to Hebrews 12. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, of your trust in God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Victory is in Christ and in Christ alone. In his life, in his death, he overcame the world, the flesh, the devil. The victory is his. Those great enemies of trust could not break his trust. Even when he was faced with the cross, he trusted his father. He trusted him. He trusted his father would keep his promises. Even when he was in the garden. Agonizing. Sweating blood. He trusted him. Our trust is in him. Our trust is not in our trust. Our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in Jesus Christ, the only faithful one. He is sure and living proof that the one who promised is faithful. And by his providence, he will keep his promise and bless his people. In Jesus, the Lord has provided. In him we trust. Let's pray. Father, we thank you wholeheartedly for keeping your promises. We thank you for protecting your promises by your providence. Help us to trust you. We so easily wonder, Lord. Help us to trust you. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. 
Amen.